people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. and Shane's story of a night girl. Starring Constance Towers. The Naked Kiss. A motion picture not for the squeamish, but powerful entertainment for those who enjoy reality in the raw. When I came to this town, I was a prostitute. Next morning, I quit. Those bonbons aren't there just to serve drinks, you know. I know. Compliments, clothes, cash. And you meet men you live on, and men who live on you. And those are the only men you'll meet. The naked kiss, when a woman bears what she really is. What were your relations with this woman? I was her uh, business manager. Marlon, when I ask you a question, I want the right answer! I washed my face clean the morning I woke up in your bedroom. You got morals in my room? I saw a broken down piece of machinery. Nothing but the buck, the bed, and the bottle for the rest of my life. I'm trying your side of the fence. Is there a law against it? Is there anything wrong with it? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Spencer Parsons. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Philip Marinello. Now, this is an audio medium, Mike, but all the reference you need is that face right there. On this special episode, we are looking at Sam Fuller's 1964 film, The Naked Kiss. The film stars Constance Towers as Kelly, a call girl who turns over a new leaf by becoming the best damn nurse a small town hospital that specializes in the care of special needs kids has ever seen. She's torn between two men, the sheriff who thinks she's trash and needs to be run out of town to a nearby brothel, and the successful entrepreneur who holds a shocking secret. We will be spilling that secret and spoiling a lot more as we go along, so if you haven't seen The Naked Kiss do so now or forever hold your peace. So, Spencer, when was the first time you saw the film and what did you think, sir? It's been a number of years. I don't remember exactly the first time. You know, it's one that comes up for me every couple of years. I watch it again. So this was a good opportunity to see it again. And it's always a bit of a um, disorienting experience. It's one of those movies that no matter how many times I watch it, I can't ever quite keep up with it. So uh, it's one of those that, you know, really does renew itself every time. And Philip, how about yourself? I was trying to think about that. The first Sam Fuller I got was when Criterion put the White Dog DVD out. 
there was just so much hubbub of this movie that nobody could ever see. And I was like, well, that sounds intense and interesting. So I grabbed that and pick up on South Street and Shot Corridor and Naked Kiss all on the one Criterion sale. So sometime in like 2010, 2011, and I loved it. And Sam Fuller has been one of my top guys ever since and has only grown in my estimation over the years. There was a period of time in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, where Shot Corridor and Naked Kiss were both put out on VHS right around the same time, if not the exact same time. It was kind of like when the Seijin Suzuki branded to kill Tokyo Drifter combination came out and you just everybody would see those two films and it was really tough for a long time to see a lot of fuller there were a whole lot of his films that were just not available i remember buying a bootleg of verboten from video search of miami steel helmet i think was another one that i had to see that way thank goodness now most of them if not all of them are available almost all there's one or two stragglers but it's amazing that almost all of them are now in really nice editions which is fantastic. Thank goodness for that. I mean, things like Crimson Kimono or House of Bamboo, like those, again, were impossible to find. And it took a lot to be able to track those things down. The opening of Naked Kiss will sear itself into your brain. You will never be able to not see that mentally after you see it. And that was all I really remembered from the movie for a long time. I am pretty sure I saw the rest of the film, but yes, man, oh man, that opening. <laughs> Holy cow. It's a hard act to follow, and yet the movie somehow follows it. It's like one of those where, oh, you're starting at 11? You're going to be able to keep this up? But Sam Fuller is there for it. Literally hitting you in the face right off the bat. And it made me think, I was looking at his filmography. I was trying to complete it this year. I don't think I will before the end of the year, but I've rewatched a lot of his stuff this year and have watched some things for the first time. So have either of you two seen uh, Street of No Return? No. Oh, yeah, I've seen that one. It made me think of that because the beginning of Naked Kiss is the audience getting hit right in the face by our protagonist. And the beginning of Street of No Return is a point of view shot of a hammer hitting another character in the face, literally with a hammer. So Sam Fuller right out the gate is like, this isn't going to be subtle. Fuller is definitely keen up fist. Yeah, the opening of this movie is we open up with Constant Towers beating the camera, beating us, basically. And there's a lot of really good POV work in this because we're going to get a scene later on with Michael Dante, which is, again, another POV that he helped shoot because it was the camera pressed up against his chest as he's walking. He's actually moving the camera himself, which was interesting. But yeah, this one opens up with Constance Towers beating us and then pulling off her wig or her wig falls off at one point and you get this image of this bald beautiful woman beating the camera with this crazy jazz music going on on the soundtrack and you're just like what the hell am i watching what is happening right now who is the man that she's beating why is she bald what is happening with this and the image of a bald woman in 1964 was a lot more shocking then than it is now, but it's still a little shocking, especially the way that her hair comes off and the way that she just has this crazed look in her eyes. It is kind of even shocking now because it's not, I don't know that it has sort of the transgressive power maybe that it might have in that moment, you know, because we live in a post-Sinead O'Connor society and things are very different on that score, but it is really shocking just as like, we're getting to know a character right out of the gate that she's 
one beating on the camera and two, a wig has fallen off. And the presence of a wig actually, you know, falling off in the situation, whether she's spearballed or not, is like, you know, character information and the way that she goes forward with it. One thing I love about Fuller generally and the way that this movie unfolds is like kind of right here in this sequence where, you know, an hour later, we're going to find out why she was bald. But Fuller is not going to provide that information until or unless it's necessary within the movie. So there are these kind of shocks that feel like they're kind of random or out of nowhere because we don't necessarily have enough information. But it isn't just because Fuller is like wanting to shock. It's because he is laying out a story in a particular way. And this, it's really important, I think, to our understanding of how we're going to see this character throughout the film, to not have everything explained, to not have some piece of dialogue, you know, about how could you shave my head, you know, or something like that in this opening scene. That There's kind of confidence in the character. And I guess I want to mention the next big thing that really struck me this time in this opening scene and struck me as like really instructive for how we're going to see this character for the rest of the movie. When she's beaten this guy up and she's yelled about how she's only going to take the money that she's owed and not a, a dollar more, she goes and she puts her wig back on and her makeup and everything in the mirror. And we get all the credits sort of rolling over her face as she does this in this fairly long take. But there's a big sound change that occurs the moment that she goes, to the mirror and we're getting one of fuller's big sudden shifts in point of view where you know maybe we could see the the initial scene as the audience put in the position of the point of view of the person she's attacking but then as she looks in the mirror the music changes it's more kind of romantic lyrical even it's like private moment for her as she's putting everything together and then that jazz comes back in the moment that the credits are over and she's going to move on in the story. And I think that that sense of a kind of, you know, Fuller's use of formal elements to signal shifts between like kind of public and private space are really important throughout this film. Well, after she's done beating him and taking the money, there are all those photos of the women that are up on the wall too. And the way that she, I think she takes her own photo down, just like, okay, you don't have control over me at all anymore. It's probably about the third or fourth time I've seen it. I don't know if I clocked that specific detail previously. When she goes back, she makes the whole thing of, I'm only taking what I'm owed. And then, yeah, she goes and takes her picture out of the stable that we find out of women that this guy was running. So, yeah, we have so much information within the first, we're not even at five minutes. When no, we're happens. like two minutes. Yeah, it's amazing because even we end that sequence, that opening with the credits and all that, we end that with the shot of the calendar, July 4th, 1961. And then we're going to move through time. And I love the way that we move through time with this because then we go to the city where most of this movie takes place and we open up with this big banner across the main street, August 12th, 1963. So we've moved forward that much in time and now she comes off of this bus and she's got the full head of hair and you're still at first you're like is that a wig is that the real thing and we won't get that until she's brushing her hair in just a few minutes where she's just like oh i wasn't able to do this for a long time and how thankful she is now in uh that last detail you mentioned about it being the, the opening scene happening on the 4th of july i went back uh it was reading a third phase sam fuller's autobiography which was a lot of it like annotating his own films that detail came from a tragic story in his past as a sam fuller was a uh, teenage reporter he started at 14 and by the time he was 16 and 17 he was seeing 
the most brutal, most rough things in society. He was in morgues. He was in whorehouses, which where some of the idea of this stuff came for him. He was reporting on a suicide that happened on the 4th of July. And it was a call girl who ended up taking her own life. And the note that she left said, today is my independence day. I will celebrate now. He kept that from when he was 17 to all that time in the future. And it's like, all of this is, you can feel how personal this is. Spencer was talking about the public and private dichotomy is a huge part of Fuller's work. And it's so interesting. I, mean, I don't know how much you want to get into Fuller himself. I know you've talked about it on some of your previous episodes, Mike, but he was a man who was both seemingly very cynical and very idealistic. He loved America, but he would not abide hypocrisy or hate or bigotry. And the way those things all kind of came together in the public and the private. And I think this particular film is one of the most interesting, one of the most searing indictments of, of society that he ever did. And his whole career was pretty much that. Oh, yeah. Constantly, he would constantly bring up issues that people were uncomfortable with. You know, in Shock Corridor, you've got the black man who is spouting all that racist white rhetoric, which just adds this amazing irony to it. You, know, you mentioned White Dog, this whole thing of the dog that's trained to attack black people. In Everything 1951, with this steel helmet, he was dealing with racism in the military in 1951. That's insane. Yeah, it's wild. In prep for this, I rewatched Shock Corridor as well because Constance Towers is in that one in a really key role. And I have to say, Sam Fuller made for amazing, appropriate watching in a week when, you know, Kanye West has uh, uh, walked out of uh, you know, one podcast and then appeared, you know, looking like a character from a, an ISIS beheading video, but doing a puppet show of some kind on Alex Jones. And saying precisely the kinds of, you know, crazy stuff that one could imagine Fuller would write into Shock Corridor or something. So we are, we're very much living in Fuller world still. But I think, you know, this is one of my things about this movie and about Fuller in general. Uh, like, do we in our current artistic and rhetorical cultures have the balls, just to put it indelicately, that Fuller did in telling stories? Yeah, and he's not making these with lavish budgets. He's making these outside of the studio system a lot of times. And I believe that this was one of his more independent features. I mean, this is shoestring type of stuff. There's not a lot of stuff going on as far as the budget here. We are very limited sets, very cheap, but very effective. Yeah, the two-picture deal he got for Shot Quarter and The Naked Kiss, he had, like you said, a shoestring budget and about 10 days each to shoot these movies. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, she comes into Grantville on the bus. Very important, the name of the city, Grantville. It's named after one of the big city founders and his son, Grant, that we'll have in here, Michael Dante. I guess Grant is the first name, is that right? Or is it the last name? Because there's Grant, there's also Griff, and that is so confusing to me. I took them both as first names. Okay. All right. Yeah, because Griff is there at the bus stop. It feels like he's there either putting people on the bus or taking people that are trying to come off the bus and just putting them right back on. It's basically a filter there for the town. Yeah, he is. He's the law, but he's also as crooked as the a dog's hind leg with the way that he's just like, oh, hey, this prostitute just rolled into town. I think I'll try her out and then send her over to this brothel across the way. Griff, the lawman, is the most despicable character in here for a long time until we find out what's going on with Grant. 
This is one of the things that's so wonderful about Fuller, but I think in particular comes to the fore in this movie. The kind of very rough, unapologetic humanism. Any character in this movie is capable of being very good and also very capable of being very bad. And the shifts that the characters have in a story that is overall about a woman who is very good, but is in a disreputable line of business and trying to change her life and dealing with other disreputable people, you know, along the way. But the movie, it's a fascinating kind of oral view of the characters. For instance, the way that we first see Griff, how things develop. He even seems to be kind of a nice guy up through some of the, you know, shady, the the part of the conversation where he's going to send her off out of town. There's even a kind of fun equality to him through that. And then he seems to turn into a villain in the middle and then kind of comes back around at the end. Everybody's sort of capable of all kinds of things. And I think in a way, you know, like there's a movie that's unsparing in terms of what's going to happen to Grant when all is revealed. But there are also levels to where, you know, Grant does good things in the world. Fuller just refuses to have a kind of flattened morality for characters. You know, they can be cartoonish in their own ways. This is not realism, but it's a much more complicated, like, has more complicated cartoons than a lot of filmmakers draw complicated, sort of rounded, you know, supposedly realistic characters. And in a tight 90 minutes, nobody likes Sam Fuller. (laughs) And he's doing these like little details, like when Kelly gets off the bus, one of the guys that's working at the bus station has her trunk and there's a big K on it. And this mom and daughter stop by at one point, they're talking with Griff and the little girl is there tracing the K over and over on the trunk. And I just love those little details like that. And it's going to establish that role between Kelly and the children of the town immediately before that we even see, you know, we saw that there is the banner across the main street with like Grantville fashion show charity event for children's orthopedic hospital and so you're already getting that like telegraphed to us there and then you get the little girl who's tracing the k and it's just like that's really super smart you're foreshadowing all of this stuff within again like the first six minutes of the film well and kelly has this amazing like you know fuller's version of a save the cat moment where the moment she sees a baby you know in a pram on the street she's got to go up she feeds the baby she just like Goes ahead, picks up that bottle and very much another time. But yeah, yes. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. But I think even at the time, that's the kind of thing that would look sort of bonkers. But and it is. I mean, it's like just moments ago, she was beating the camera. And now she's like just walking up to this baby and instantly feeding this like incredible doubleness that that Fuller is like constantly reminding us of with her is is great. And like you said, we can take it. He is not even unafraid. He takes joy in shining light on the ugliness and the hypocrisy and the rot while also having that optimism in the flip side. She got out of this and now she is trying to turn her life around. He talks about in his book that he even had a warped view of women who went down this path and who engaged in these things until as a teenager, he got to know them. And he talked about how getting to know them humanize them in his point of view and how he wasn't like luridly attractive to them and how he had disdain for it. And even the character of Griff, loosely based, like he saw policemen and politicians come in and out secretly of these things. And, and he saw the hypocrisy from that age. But on the flip side, he saw that some of these women were, they found this was the only way. It's not just these men and women are doing bad and good. 
he's not just looking at individual morality. He's looking at societal morality. What is it that makes these women do these things and what keeps them trapped in these things? And and the people who are in charge of it, like when we get to later on in the film, the woman who runs the brothel, like how did she get to her role? Like Grant, all these things, he doesn't let anyone off easy at all. And Anthony Isley is constantly touching her face and he keeps putting his hands around her throat a lot of times. Like notice the way that Griff will do this and it's just like this whole like control thing that he's trying to do. And that's his whole thing is like wanting to control her and being like, okay, well, that was great. No, uh, by the way, <laughs> owe me $10, uh, because the champagne's only 10. So he wants change. I guess he wanted champagne and sex all for $10, which is a pretty tall order. And then he's just basically so matter of fact, like, well, that's great and all, but you know, you can't stay in this town, but there is a brothel right across the river. I can hook you up with that lady. And then you'll be all set. And she's like, no, no, I'm, I'm selling the champagne. This is my gig. You know, this is how I'm going to make a living. And then eventually she finds that the children's hospital and goes there. And he's just convinced that she can never turn on over a new leaf. You know, once, once you are sullied like this, you are sullied like that forever. And first off, you know, sex work is real work. You're not being sullied. You're making a choice. You're doing your thing. Don't judge somebody who's making an honest living. And yet, you know, Griff is right there just like, oh, well, you know, you're a whore and you'll always be a whore and you're a horrible person. And how dare you even come near children? This is a black mark on our city's image. I didn't really think about it in my previous viewings, but looking at some of the things Sam Fuller said, he saw the character of Griff as a bit of a frustrated guy, a guy who wanted to be a big city cop, but couldn't really hack it. So he's kind of like the big fish in the small pond kind of complex. And that really does make sense. It's not necessarily he's a bad guy or a total megalomaniac. He's definitely compensating and all the things that he feels insecure about he's kind of projecting on for others and his coping mechanism is control. There's also this whole thing where he is not the hero, that it is Grant that saved him in the Korean War. There's that newspaper that we get to see up on the wall that says Grant saves Griff in Korea, semicolon wounded. And it's like, yeah, okay, now he owes Grant his entire life. And he's kind of indebted to Grant the person as well as Grantville the city. And I totally agree that he does feel like he really wants to be the big gumshoe, the big detective, but he's, yeah, he's stuck in small town life. Good luck. Well, I think that that's also, this is not the wire, you know, this is not some tremendously complicated vision of a city, but it is working out these kinds of connections among different parts of community in a way that I think, you know, really plays into the sense of the community having doubleness alongside the individual characters. And that seems to be something that is, that's kind of you know, baked in in some interesting ways. And the, the ways in which people depend on each other then justify, you know, hiding their secrets or, you know, sort of preventing justice from being done. It's a remarkably complicated web of simple kinds of lines. You know, again, this is not realism to any stretch of the imagination, but it is working out, you know, kind of George Romero's a, a filmmaker of a similar ilk in terms of working out complicated moral relationships among people who are fairly simplified. But Fuller goes this one extra step that I think is really wonderful, having complicated, if not exactly complex characters, if that makes sense. You've also got this alternative to the prostitution, which is marriage. You know, it's that whole, like in films noir, women were either murdered or married by the end of it. 
And in this one, you know, thank goodness, and spoiler alert, Constance Towers Kelly is not murdered, nor is she married, which is fantastic. But we have that as this alternative, and we've got Miss Josephine, the lady that runs the house that she eventually moves into. And I love that you know they keep focusing on that word pleasant, you know, pleasant room for rent. And she's got that body form because she's a seamstress. She's got this body form and she's almost a Miss Havisham because it's like, oh yeah, this is my wedding dress and da 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 da. I'm like, oh, okay. And then you get that nurse at the hospital later on who, you know, what was it? Like she needs this money for something. I can't remember what it was, but it's basically like, I want to say like her marriage depends on getting this money. And I can't remember the exact details of that. Well, she gave it to her. I, I couldn't tell if it was marriage or what, but it was to prevent her from going to get an abortion. It was basically to go. That's what it was. Take care of yourself. Don't do this. Take it like prioritize yourself because you are a like a woman in society, like necessarily you're in a vulnerable position. So here's some money so that you don't have to go that route. That's right. I couldn't remember that it was the abortion, which again, 1964. 1964. <laughs> There's so much in these movies that, again, feels very much ahead of its time and very much up to the minute, for better and worse. Fuller gets away with more under greater legal and commercial constraints at the time than it seems like a lot of filmmakers are willing to do in, you know, making issue-related kinds of movies now. In fact, this has a whole bunch of issues, but there's a moment even where Fuller, I don't know if he's commenting on Stanley Kramer and other such figures of of the time, but there's a bit of dialogue about like, I'm not just some issue or whatever. There's a sense of tackling issues while keeping it all rooted very much in like the human, you know, in characters and community and their relationships. And for instance, we open with violence towards the camera. But to me, the most shocking bit of violence in the movie is when she goes and attacks the madam and the, the whorehouse across the way. And that's covered in a wide shot with most of the stunt work and whatnot hidden from our view. It's actually a kind of ballsy way to shoot violence because it feels shocking while it's actually a lot of it is fairly hidden, you know, from from sight. It's very much about the speed at which Helly attacks, the way that she overtakes this other woman seems to be. And we're very far away and kind of move. You could almost see it as a stagey kind of shot, but is actually like remarkably shocking. And the time that this shot takes at the end, not simply to show, you know, Kelly walking away as some kind of girl boss, but also to register, I'm forgetting the name of the character, but to register the madam's pain. Candy, because she's got all of her sweets there. That's right. The sweet candy is seen within the same moment. It isn't. Kelly is definitely, you know, our heroine for the film. There's not a question about that. But her effect on other characters is something that is that, that Fuller takes time to register. And violence doesn't come without cost for the people involved. Well, and that also reminds me of the moment of violence against Buff, the young woman who Candy had tried to scout and recruit for the brothel. Kelly uses violence because that's what she knows. It's not just the hurt people, hurt people adage, but that's part of it. Kelly is both a full person and character, but also a mechanism to shine a light on all these folks and all of their, their predicaments personally and societally. And yeah, like violence is kind of of what was put upon her throughout her life. Like when the wig comes off, we learn later on at the end of the film 
that she was trying to help some of the girls out, get out of the pimp's kind of ring. Some of his best girls got away. So to get back at Kelly, the pimp drugged her and shaved her head. And to kind of be like, well, like if you even thought you could get away before, like everybody knows you're a prostitute and now you're bald. So like you kind of have to be with me. And she broke the chain of that from the beginning and she's trying to help other people kind of get out or heal. She is a broken person trying to heal herself and the people around her, but is doing so with the tools that she wish that she has. When she first walks into the brothel to find Candy after she found out Buff had been given the money and the job offer, she walks into that like determined, like Arnold Schwarzenegger walks into the biker bar. Like she is focused and you know that like it's not going to be good when she finds the madam. There is an element of Douglas Sirk in these movies as well, as far as the level of melodrama is everything is pitched so high. You know, you talked about how it starts at 11. It stays at 11 so much through this and just the human emotions are so raw and everything is just so out there. You know, when Kelly becomes the nurse at the orthopedic hospital, she becomes the best nurse in the entire world and she's tough loving these kids and making them self-assured and giving them this confidence because they've been coddled all their lives because they have, you know, missing limbs or different problems. And yet she's there, you know, that whole moment with the one little boy where she's just like, touch your toes, you know, you got to touch your toes and just like making him do this new thing. Cause he just got some new legs and he's afraid he can't reach the ends of them. And she's just like, you got to do this. And there's Patsy Kelly in the other room looking on and just like, oh, look at Kelly. She's really doing such a great job with this. And yeah, everything is just so out there and such a raw nerve. And that's what I think I like the most about Fuller's films is just all these raw nerves just hanging out, waiting for people to just scream with emotion. And can we talk about the song for a moment? Because oh my the, God. The, the song is where the movie goes to a whole other unexpected level. And it is really heightened. Of course, it's also using the Constance Towers was this big you know, Broadway uh, musical star. She's like Anna and Anna in, in, in uh, The King and I, which actually, you know, it's funny when I first saw this movie, because my parents are big musical people. I recognized her voice. It was like Constance Towers, Constance Towers. Who's that? I had heard the soundtrack of The King and I with her voice many times as a child. So it's really interesting and, you know, quite brave for her to take on this kind of role, you know, given her work before. And of course, she had been in uh, Shot Corridor just before this one. But that song takes us to this other heightened level. And it there's nothing quite to prepare us for it. You know, not being attacked in the opening moment can prepare us for this song where she's singing with the children. First, where the children are singing by themselves and we get the individual close-ups of them and looking right into camera and they're not good singers which makes it better and then she comes in and she's a perfect singer with all these children and it's like oh my god this is like not some you know hooker with a heart of gold this is at some other weird angelic strange kind of level and then also fitting that within the world of violence that she has to commit in the film it's an incredible whipsaw and I will say that the opening scene obviously was a big deal, but the one the one that really hit me the first time I saw it at some point back in the 90s was the song that just floored me. And I was like, you can do that? I mean, of course, I've seen musicals. I've seen people sing in movies. But this was one where I was like, what, you can do that in a movie? It's surreal. It's so affecting. Usually it brings me to tears. 
It's this bizarre thing, but it feels so true. We've talked about a few times, Mike, you just said how this film's a bundle of raw nerves, and it is, but this one, I think more than any other Fuller film, the first time viewer or even a repeat viewer, you can kind of get lulled into, well, this is a regular old movie about a lady, like trying to better her life. And it's like, he's so good at story and all these people were drawn from real people. He's not like, oh, like I have a bone to pick with America. So I'm going to like, that was part of it, but this was all real. And the way that you have these insane acts of violence, this like ugly corruption. And then like, she's a nurse. She's trying to help these kids. It's like the way that this movie goes up and down. And again, in 90 minutes, I'm floored every time. It's it's quite something. And it's impossible to really follow the plot because this is a very linear movie. It's not as if there's some kind of non-linear sort of crazy thing. You know, there are bits of exposition that he waits until later to give you, but they're generally more about character than they are sort of gotcha for how the plot's going to go. It's just that the way that this puts one foot in front of the other as part of her journey is not the usual sort of retrofitted that you came up with the ending first and you make everything else work in order to take us inevitably to to the ending. I mean, the point that it's revealed that, that Grant is a pedophile, that's not something that I could have imagined within the plot of this movie, and it turns the whole act. But it isn't something that's totally out of nowhere either. It's of a piece with the world. And it's that, you know, Fuller is more dedicated to a kind of straightforward chronology in his storytelling, this like linear chronology of following this through. And it has emotional and thematic kinds of, you know, structures to it that overlay and that hold everything together. But it's not doing this thing of building this clean line from what she's doing at the beginning to like what is going to be the mission in the third act and all that kind of stuff. You can still break it down into a traditional kind of three act structure, but you know, Fuller kind of, you know, like Larry Cohen and some other exploitation writers are really amazing. And I think Fuller's maybe the best at this, but I, I mentioned Larry Cohen as well as being, you know, particularly great in this territory of following a chronology and following it ruthlessly. If things are held together thematically, but you can't tell what's going to happen next because the world is more complicated and is not constantly signaling to us where the story is going to go. Since we've had that spoiler, Spencer, about Grant himself, I was particularly struck, like you said, the way the linear progression, the song with the children who the movie has shown us, Kelly coming into this town and her, her tough love. One of the people says like she makes Captain Hook look like a sissy or something like that. She's not all gentle, soft touches, but she loves these kids. She's helping them. It's like she's a natural. Like you said, she's the best person to ever be a nurse. And this song ends with the climax of the song is, mommy, dear, why are there tears in your eyes? And it's this emotional moment makes to me almost weep, sometimes weep every time I see it. And the song in that scene evokes tears of joy. It's like, wow. Like she has been such a blessing and a grace to this town. Like her presence, all of the things that have made her who she is up until this point has made in her a woman with a soft heart for like the broken. So she is loving them. She is serving them. She is helping them. And the song ends with mommy, dear, why are there tears in your eyes? And it's such a beautiful moment. 
and that song that they're singing is being recorded and Grant has that recording in his home. So, and I want to talk about the scene where Grant proposes to her in the the climactic moment of the reveal of Grant's true nature that the children's song is playing. She's like, oh, she's coming in with her wedding dress. She wants to, to show him. And as she walks in on what we find out is abuse about to happen. Thankfully, like it's interesting how they deal with abuse, but then later on we find out she prevents it. Like for you're led to believe she walks in in the midst of abuse. And that's that's a horrific picture. And later on they kind of he kind of has his cake and needed it too. He dials back. You came in right before anything happened. And then she clocks exactly what's happening. And then the refrain of the song plays again, Mommy dear, why are there tears in your eyes? And it's a completely it's got the, the polar opposite effect. And you're like, how did he do this? Like this, it's perfect storytelling. It's perfect. Well, and then, so a couple of things. One is that she instantly figures it out, which the movie doesn't make clear, but which I kind of believe to be the case. You know, this is something that doesn't get underlined as exposition. She's seeing something she's been through. And so there's that. And then it turns into this early snorry cam style trick where he's walking directly, repeating the formal technique of the very beginning, but now not shaky, walking directly towards camera and in this constant close-up. And he's telling her, you know, we're good together because we're both damaged. We're both abnormal. Abnormal, yes, exactly. Taking her career as a sex worker and making that equal to pedophilia in this moment, really intense, and it's still taking that character seriously in the interview that Michael Dante, an interview with him, he was describing how he had this difficulty of making sure that the camera stayed steady. And so he's operating the camera. But then at the same time, he was trying to keep this face and keep effect of a kind of pure and honest explanation of his situation that he really believes. You know, he wanted this to be a fuller moment and not not just Sam Fuller, but a full moment of a character, you know, who believes in themselves in a particular way, who's presenting his hideous case, you know, honestly. And then the way that she kills him instantly, but then the veil falls over his face is this sort of beautiful heightened, again, back to like Miss Havisham. It's a kind of heightened like Dickens sort of image to do in this moment of murder. Well, and it's so twisted and sick grant sees that like he sees kelly walking in on him about to molest like a what does it say like a 10 or 12 year old girl or whatever he sees that well i thought she was younger but later on in the jail scene they say a number i don't remember what number but he sees that as a joyous moment like oh like i don't have to pretend anymore this is great in that moment for him grant is finding relief in being found out And then his assumption is like, hey, like we're both like jacked up morally here. Like, let's have a full life together and indulge in our vices. And he sees those as as compatible. Yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing moment. And it also raises questions. I mean, I don't think that this is borne out by the plot, but it at least raises momentary questions about Griff's previous sort of interest in protecting his friend from marrying her. There it raises questions for me of has Griff been protecting this guy from getting arrested before. And that's not borne out, but I think within the moral universe, it's making me ask these questions about law enforcement and about justice. There's a moment of bigger horror to it than just 
the interpersonal reveal or like the idea of walking in on the worst thing you could imagine. There's this other kind of dimension that goes, at least for me, you know, that's sort of a social thing. And that was something that came up on this viewing, even though I've seen it a number of times before. I was like, oh, right. So it's like, I know where the movie's going to go because I've seen it before. But I'm, I'm at the same time asking, oh, has Griff been protecting this pedophile? And maybe that's in my mind because of Jeffrey Epstein and other such figures, you know, in our world. But I, I don't think that that's, if it's not intentional, I think the way that Fuller constructs this kind of moral universe, it's not off the reservation. No, I don't think he was intending that specifically, but rather again to, in that way, kind of point the finger at society because he's wealthy, because he's engaged in philanthropy. He just has a free pass and nobody bats an eye. Like he picks up and hugs and kisses a couple of different kids in the movie. And I mean, again, like that stuff can be fine, but like you just see rich, affable guy, no questions asked. I guess my one negative note, I think this is a perfect movie. The only thing in this scene, I'm pretty sure she only hits him one time and he's dead. <laughs> and he's yeah. dead. And I'm, it's like, okay, maybe that was a heck of a hit. My only note would then maybe hit him a few more times if it's, she's going to kill him. Well, those telephones were pretty heavy back then. <laughs> I'm sure. I love telephones as murder weapons, I have to say. It is one of my favorite sort of film noir weapons. You and Detour, you're right there. <laughs> oh, yeah, actually, absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> but then the, the moment after the murder where she is sitting there, that was just shattering for so many reasons. I think I hadn't even clocked that, Spencer. I'm almost certain, given her life to one degree or another, she had to recognize herself in the girl and what was about to happen. But then the revulsion of him, like being familiar with her and his excitement of like, okay, now, now we can really be together. It comes out in murder. And then she's just sitting there in like the shattered shell of the life she thought she was going to live. She thought with Grant. And I mean, she asks the question too, heartbreakingly, like, why would Grant want to marry a woman like me? And the answer is, is devastating. And she's just sitting there with his body and Sam Fuller, he only does a couple of cuts, but he cuts around the house to kind of suggest like, here's the stairs, here's the dining room. This is the life that she thought she was going to live. These, uh, this is the house that she thought she was maybe going to raise a family. And it's, it's all gone. Well, she has the dreams. Yeah. He, the first night that they're together when he's showing her home movies of Venice. Which goes in a crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I love, like, as they're starting to fall in love, Fuller does this great push in on him as he's talking, and then you cut to the opposite angle, and then does a push in on her, and that's when her fantasy starts of this whole Venice <laughs> fantasy, which is wild. In the middle of this movie, that's, like, so normal. They're like, no, like, there's a gondola fantasy where they are in the actual gondola together, all in this movie. But also cut together with documentary yes. footage. You know, the movie is going so they can see that. So it's normalized within it. But formally, what it does to be putting this dream together from pieces of them on the couch to like, you know, putting them in a gondola to then cutting to the scratched up and handheld gondola footage from the movie. It, this, is, this is like one of those areas where, you know, Fuller likes to talk about how Godard had taken some cues from him and stolen things. There's that story about that Fuller tells where he's like, 
well, you know, in my business, that's called plagiarism. And Gadar <laughs> said, we call it in France, homage. <laughs> but it's a, this is really at, at like a very formally ambitious and intense kind of thing for the time. But actually, even now, this is like a very, the, the way that it's put together, there would be, so for instance, there are some bits kind of like this. So I just happened to see it yesterday, but I saw the, the Spielberg movie, The Fablemans, and that has some really interesting use of like shifts into Super 8 at particular emotional moments. And not, it's not only when the main character is shooting one of his movies, there are also emotional moments that do that. But Spielberg goes this extra level to sort of explain the way that things are working and kind of underline it formally. It didn't bother me that much in that particular movie, but it's like, we kind of have to have these things evened out now. And Fuller is just going to knock it all together. And I'm actually, I have to say, you know, I enjoyed the Fablemans. It's not like, a, I'm not here to trash Spielberg or this particular movie, but I prefer the Fuller method where it really is just like slam these rocks together to make this sculpture and that they retain, you know, those separate pieces in a montage remain, you know, uh, they, they have their own integrity as, you know, one kind of footage versus another kind of another and that we don't have to have it, all the everything smoothed over with CGI or, you know, the, the, the right kind of explanatory cut or whatnot. Well, Spencer, you mentioned uh, Shot Corridor, the, the scene where it turned into the gondola reminded me of the finale. Exactly. It's raining inside. Like these moments that are so heightened, they're, it's perfect cinema that it's like hyper reality. Yes. Well, and Shot Corridor actually goes one step even farther rhetorically into a zone where I'm like, yeah, Goddard, you're stealing from Fuller when the black KKK guy is giving a, a monologue and it starts cutting to, you know, footage that's like Mondo Kane kind of stuff, you know, anthropological footage, documentary work of African tribes people engaged in something. And it's it's like, I don't know what that means, but as an experience in the middle of the movie, it makes me feel, you know, for lack of a better term, crazy. And I think that's something that Fuller is absolutely ready to engage with. And I think in this movie as well, to differing degrees, you know, in, in The Naked Kiss, he's willing to put these elements together. Well, to show her, yeah, she is in love. Like, she thinks that she has gotten out. And he gives the, like, as an audience, we are familiar with romance, movie, love story. And it's so interesting how he uses the, th like, it's not usually that unless it's like a... Um, like a travel piece where people find each other in a European city or what have you. But like the idea of meeting somebody in a magical, special place, Fuller puts you there in the audience going like, she's there. Like she is experiencing exactly what she wants and only about like 10 or 15 minutes away from ripping it all out from underneath her. One thing that the lushness and the intensity of that fantasy does is it also takes the moment where she has the naked kiss with him and yes. she notices that something is off and there's a beat between them. We haven't talked about the actual the naked kiss yet. Yeah, the idea that there's this kiss. There was an interview where the real term was I kiss, but I kind of love the exploitation. Oh, yeah. Sort of about much your, better pulpy title. Yeah, much better pulpy title of the naked kiss. But the idea of the naked kiss being when a prostitute kisses a John and realizes that that person through the way that they are kissing is a much more problematic, uh, perverted, you know, like difficult character who's going to ask really bad things of them. And so she has this moment, then Lillard kind of explains it. But in this moment, she realizes that something is wrong. There's a foreboding 
But then the fantasy overcomes that foreboding. And I think that's, it's beautiful. Even though he's breaking all of these rules with these, you know, surrealist sequences of, you know, that proto snorri cam that you're talking about, the music video for the song that's right in the middle of the film, the Venice fantasy sequence, he's still very much abiding by the proper rules of films, you know, like when she makes that transition into becoming a nurse, that's right around the 30 minute mark when she murders the Michael Dante character, Grant, that's right at the one hour mark. I mean, we are right there with, you know, first act into second act, second act into third act, because at first, the first time I watched this, it was just like, wow, all of a sudden now it's like a murder mystery. And now we're going to find this girl that was almost molested by Michael Dante, or is it, you know, what's going to happen here? And I'm just like, no, no, this is your third act. You know, it's just a, it feels like a very sudden switch, but at the same time, you're like, no, no, this is exactly the right beat in order to move from what we just had into this new story here and be able to wrap up all these things. And he's already set up all the dominoes. He set up candy. He set up that she's going to want to screw over Kelly when she comes over on the right side of the tracks. I mean, yeah, he's doing all of the right things with this and the revelation of that little girl and the way she skips out of Grant's house and just that look on Constant Tower's face, because we really haven't talked about what a great actress she is, but my God, she has this big smile when she's coming into Grant's house, everything's great. And she sees what's going on and you just get to see that smile fade and then turn into a scowl. And it's just so well done great stuff with this and then yeah it turns into this whole other movie for the last bit of it which is is she justified with this is she not you know and just all of the people are coming out of the woodwork to be like kelly's just a piece of shit lock her up and throw away the key and yet you know somehow justice kind of prevails even though by the end of the movie she's kind of kicked out of town regardless griff seems to have really gotten his way we mentioned earlier Buff, the young, attractive nurse, she's single, that Candy is trying to bring over to her side of the tracks. She's kind of the linchpin of her defense before she finds the girl. And then in the moment, in the first moment, she buckles. When she sees Candy, she lies. And um, you think, oh man, like Kelly's really screwed. This is not going to go well. And then she later has a change of heart where... I'm pretty sure I, I was looking for photos online. I can't be a hundred percent sure, but her, her dad in the military that she had the picture of, I'm pretty sure that was Sam Fuller <laughs> that she was talking to his picture. And she has the change of heart and tells Griff the truth. So Griff's like, okay, the whole idea of Griff being morally upright. And literally the first time we see him, he's engaging like her services she, he's talking to her about what she does and she throws it back at him. I forgot the prompt, but she throws it back at him. Well, you ought to know, is this guy guilty or not? And if you find the little girl, that's it. Like she's been put through a whole lot and he's, he's kind of putting her through the meat grinder when really the only thing is like, can we find this girl? That should really be the linchpin, not what candy across this, like across town has to say or anybody else. Well, and then it leads to that ending, which I do think it's very ambiguous exactly whether is she walking out of town on her own because everybody's gathered, you know, there's that reveal of she comes out the door and everybody's gathered. It's ominous. Uh, so, yeah, it's really ominous. Like, 
she's a hero to them or heroine to them. And, and we get all the tears in the eyes and we get some hugs. But then that final shot of walking away and then the bus kind of passes her by, which is another layer of ambiguity. But is it? Yes. It, on one level, it's exactly what Griff wanted at the beginning, that she's getting kicked out of town. On another, is she walking out of town? And, you know, it's always complicated, this emotional exchange, and yet also a final recognition of, of this hypocrisy. Because she also has a line, you know, just before the end, I should have written this down, but she has a line uh, when she's told that the town now has changed their mind about her. She's like, oh. He said, they sure do put up statues overnight around here, don't they? Yeah, they sure put up statues overnight around here. Yeah, which is, I mean, that really says something. And so I'll throw in right now that I think this movie would actually make a terrific double bill with Hail the Conquering Hero, the Preston Sturges, because this is, you know, they actually are dealing with very similar kinds of notions of how the public sees one and hypocrisy. And ultimately, you know, the Preston Sturges movie, which I adore, is the more sort of cynical and its happy ending is a much more cynical and dark. And I would also say kind of adolescent take on a uh, notion of hypocrisy than the end of Naked Kiss, which is you know, a little more of a downer and uh, ambiguous in the way that it goes. I feel like it was both a downer and again, but with that optimism. Like, I fully believe my reading is that she is walking away from the town because like Mike said, she had done so much actual good. And then she admits, yes, I killed him because of this. And then nobody believes her until they do finally get the girl and clear her name. But the way that people did pivot so hard against her. And then when it's found out, oh no, and we didn't talk about this, the man who she's assaulting at the beginning of the movie, Griff brings in as a character witness against yes. her. He, yeah. Griff brings in her former pimp as a character witness against her. And this is what she's been put through. I fully believe she's walking away from that. Well, and actually, and again, like this movie, <laughs> how dark it was, it was revealed in that scene that he basically put out a hit on her, which is why she ran, that there was like a, a contract to throw acid in her face if anybody saw her in her previous town. So that's why she was on the bus. Tra I mean, it's two years later, but she turned into a traveling saleswoman all around the country. And, and that's what she went through. I fully believe she's walking away saying like this small town, and that's kind of Fuller's, one of big Fuller's critiques of American society that they are. They're finger pointers, they're intolerant, they're hateful, they're hypocrites. So she's walking away from that, but also kind of in hopes of finding something better eventually. And that was kind of his whole thing, like, we have issues, but we can be better. And it's a very mature, I feel like balanced thing, because it's negative, it's finger pointing, not as finger pointing as some of his films, but yeah, it's ultimate, it's cynically hopeful, I think. I think so. I guess, you know, not to play formalist so much, but I swear uh, this, this is my, my dedication to a certain formalism in, in Fuller's work and that comes through in this particular movie is, you know, the formalism is rooted in it's not just that he wants to set things up in a certain way or that it's clever to combine these different kinds of elements or that it's cool to crash one mood into another or that it just hasn't been done before or whatever. We have, you know, this the changes in tone within this movie and within really pretty much any Fuller film. But the changes in tone within this movie 
aren't simply that the world of it is kind of wild and will change tone from one moment to the next, but it's also very much hooked into this idea of humanity and the, you know, the complexity and the doubleness of people. And again, back to that, you know, it's easy to point to that early moment, the hard shift in the use of a kind of direct address to the camera, looking directly at a camera at a very, very different use from just moments before where she's attacking, that she's then fixing up herself in the mirror. And then also the shift in sound for this moment. And we get some changes in mood, changes in sound, changes in the way that the picture works that can be very disorienting at different times throughout this film. But they are really, you know, growing from a vision of humanity. I have to say, when I watch something like this, I'm struck. You know, I have a taste that generally is for tonal shifts that can be pretty big. So that's a personal taste thing. But I do really wonder about in our particular moment right now, certain kind of tonal shifts are really forbidden as like both commercial and kind of even within a certain sort of arty world, you know, like, again, I, I'm going to pick on a particular film here just as a sort of example. Nobody cares if I don't like the new Dune, but like one of the things that struck me about the new Dune is that like, even on the level of production design, the tone was so consistent across everything that happens in that story that like the different planets just look like different wings of the same modernist brutalist art museum so it's like when we're on caledon and we're inside oh the lighting is this way and the, there's a little bit difference in the decor but that's like just it's all the same kind of brutalism across all these places and the movie itself for me was like the visual equivalent of a hans zimmer droning score that it just like kept this one level throughout that is not uncommon these days. You know, I found it, you know, as a Dune head and as a lover of the Lynch version, as well as the novel, I found it to be particularly annoying in that film. But when I see a movie like The Naked Kiss or when I watch a bunch of Fullers at once, I'm really struck by the way in which, you know, both on our art film level and on our, you know, blockbuster level, we really try to create a very nice, smooth, hygienic, sense of emotional tone and relationship to characters throughout through some differing kind of formal devices but it's it is refreshing to see fuller and again you know back to seeing kanye on um on alex jones this week i really feel like those are tonal and emotional shifts that are in our real life i you know in seeing that particular moment i at once laughed because it was so ridiculous and in the same moment i was freaking terrified what is it in our world that could produce this and i feel like fuller had an intense kind of formal engagement in his storytelling and in the ways that he jolts us. It's not just fun that he's jolting us. It is a worldview. It is a way of seeing the characters and being part of their lives and putting us as an audience into it. And I'll just say, you know, for myself, I take that away as a note to self, like, you know, in my own way, try to put more of that into my own work. But it's also, I will say, a little bit of a finger wagging to our moment that we are not as willing as artists and as audience. You know, artists are at fault, audiences are at fault for really wanting this very smooth kind of characterization. And here's the last thing that I'll wrap up with. Why do I think that smooth characterization is not so great? Because it suggests that people have unitary essences and the stories have unitary essences that suggest a very flattened and easy morality and our world is filled with not so flat and not so easy moralities that need to be addressed in our artwork. And so it's not like, oh, you can't ever do that kind of smooth thing. But when that becomes the main way that we do it, I have 
questions about what we're all going through as artists and audience. I think it's the perfect encapsulation of uh, Sam Fuller's uh, cameo as Sam Fuller in Pierre LeFou, where he talks about film is a battleground. It's love and hate and life and death and all these things. It's emotion. And, and it's true. Just like you said, that's how you can have realism and a crazy fight and a fantasy and little children singing poorly into camera. And it works like because the emotion is true. It tells the truth about humanity. To Spencer's point, multifaceted, complex, not not singular, not one thing. And and Fuller was uh, a lover of man, <laughs> even though he hated him. I think I like Fuller's black and white films more than I like his color films, just because even though these movies are in black and white, he doesn't deal with blacks and whites. There are so many shades of gray, and he is all about that. Every single character has that ambiguity. There's nobody that's truly good or truly bad. Even like you said, Grant does all this great stuff for the community, has all of these benefits for these you know poor crippled children, and then he's a molester. Everybody's got their really good sides and their completely awful sides, and there's nobody that's just one note, other than maybe Hatrack, the Edie Williams character. I absolutely love when she shows up in this movie, and just that her name is Hatrack is probably one of my most favorite things in here. I mean, there's humor with this movie as well. It's not just beating you over the head with morality. No, it's kind of a light movie in a lot of way. The tone is, it's impeccable. Like, I truly feel like this was like the peak of his powers doing exactly what he wanted to do just flawlessly. Let's go ahead and take a break and we'll be back with a pair of interviews. First, we'll hear from Grant himself, Michael Dante. That interview was recorded for the most recent NoirCon in 2022. So it sounds a little bit different than normal. And then after that, we'll hear from Constance Towers, and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Hello, everyone. This is Malcolm McDowell. I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash projection booth that's pretty simple I think you can do that it's a great show and Mike he provides hours of great entertainment so now it's time to give back my little droogies settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old Malocco and then you'll be ready for a little of the old in out, in out, real horror show. Bye bye. I am joined by Michael Dante, the star of the movie that we're about to see, The Naked Kiss from Sam Fuller. Michael Dante playing, let's just say, not necessarily the nicest guy in the world, but that's not to say that Michael Dante is not the nicest guy in the world. I'm so happy to be speaking with you, sir. Well, thank you, Rife. I'm looking forward to our conversation and forward to good memories and wonderful times we had at filming uh, The Naked Kiss. Well, can you tell me where you were in your career when The Naked Kiss came about? Interesting. I had already spent three uh, years on the contract at three major studios before 1964. Started out on the contract at MGM. I went to from MGM to Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers Century Fox with a five-picture deal there at uh, 20th. But 
In the beginning of MGM, I did two pictures at MGM, small parts. It was my first job where somebody up there likes me and happened to be my first picture with Paul Milman and Steve McQueen. It was Steve McQueen's first movie as well. And also did Rain Tree County with Elizabeth Saylor and uh, it did small parts. Uh, I think I had four sequences and somebody up there likes me and a couple of sequences in Rain Tree County. But that was by initial jobs in the business, being on the contract, making all of them $200 a week, which I was fine and to pay the bill. Then from there, I segued. I did a, uh, a play, uh, Skin of Our Teeth, and uh, Spelly Beato, the talent scout at Warner Brothers, saw me and invited me to the studio to do a screen test. I did a screen test for uh, Peter Brown, and we both signed the contract. So now there, I did all of their uh, television shows. Maverick, Cheyenne, Code 44. It just went on and went on at the Hawaiian And I did a couple of pilots there as well. And uh, started my first movie with my favorite director, uh, Bud Bettinger, film entitled Westbound. I played a wonderful soldier boy coming back from the Civil War. He got great reviews and with the wonderful cast, Randolph Scott, Virginia Mayo, and Karen Steele. And then from there, I continued to do all of the shows and uh, did uh, two uh, other features. One was Clint Walker, uh, Fort Dobbs, and uh, Born Reckless with Mamie Van Dorn, which was the first time I ever danced in a film. I choose the ability to work with. But there were small parts, so that was disappointing. Being on the contract and co-starring, getting reviews and, and so forth at Westbound, and then having to do small parts, yeah, four jobs and board were other records. So I was not enamored of the studio and the, of the head of casting. And I you know, I told him so. I said, where is graduation that year? I did a great job. You told me how great I was and everybody loved my work and so forth. And then you could cast me in two smaller parts. I said, you're not concerned about me and I'm, I'm not concerned about what uh, your attitude is towards my career. So soon I left Warner Brothers, and in no time at all, I did it. This was a 19, I was there in 1957, 58, but in 1959, I did the Desilu Playhouse. Co-star, Hello, James Rule, playing Mexican fighter, when Roy and I did all the fighting sequences ourselves, and was entitled The Killer Instinct which is a Desiree Playhouse, a very, very popular show at the time. And within 24 hours after my performance in, 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 the, in, the, film, in the, the show, I had tracks. Less than wow. 24 hours. The next day, my first appointment at 11.30 was with Quinn Martin. Now, I was not going to be a Bob Stack's flunky. I was going to do Star of 13. He was going to do Star in 13. We would rotate. So I told uh, Quinn, I'm leaving here in the half hour, hour, and I have an uh, appointment at uh, a meeting with Sidney Bolton, the producer of Seven Thieves. Uh, well, movie that they were uh, producing, starring Eddie Z. Robinson, Rod Steiger, 
Joe Collins, Eli Wallace, Alex Gorby, Barry Kroger, and Sebastian Cabot. I remember everything about it. And um, very enticing. And I wanted to do films like it. Uh, time and the light, uh, to mold the character and not be rushed in, in uh, shooting schedules like it, on television. So each time I, re- I turned down the Untouchables with Quinn, with my agent, and that, uh, that morning, the price went up and so forth. And eventually went to a favorite nation's clause with Wild Stack. So it was an awful lot of money. But I wanted to do films, and I had a five-picture deal with 20th Century Fox, beginning with Seven Thieves, which is a marvelous cast. And I had a great part, playing the little board and safe cracker. So I had a great time, because I loved job uh, Steiger's work and Cabo Joe Collins and, and, of course, Eli Wallach and Eddie T. Robinson. So we all got to be great friends from that. So it was a treasure in uh, my life and in my career to be working with uh, all those talented people. So after that, I did co uh, stars with um, Woody Murphy in the first of two pictures I did with him, 1960. 64. But before that, I did a film called Operation Bikini with Scott Brady. And yeah, it was a commercial, a big commercial success and so forth. But we had a wonderful time. But prior to that, I did Kid Galahad with Elvis Presley in 1962. And I played a fighter in that. I played the champion, Joe Shakes. And Elvis and I did all our fight sequences, Dunlin and so forth. So it was the first time they were saying in a movie. We had a great time and, and thoroughly working with a wonderful cast. Dig Young, Laurel Wright, a cast of wonderful character actors, Charlie Brownson. So it was, uh, I was on a roll. I was going from television shows to, to movies and so forth and so on. And then, of course, that go start with uh, Audie Murphy and Apache Rifles in uh, 1964. And then the advent of, of uh, 1964, The Naked Kiss. And so I did an awful lot of work in, in between, I would say, 1960, 67, well, of the contract, 66, 67, all the way into 1964. And so I was a hand actor rolling and so forth. How did I get the role? Well, how I got the role was uh, my agent, I had... Um, and Sammy Fuller, the great Sammy Fuller, he, Sammy Fuller could do more with uh, less money than most most directors at the time could do with big budgets. He was a, a super talent. He was a writer. He was a director. He could do it all. He was a filmmaker and an innovator at that. So Bill Schifrin was his agent and my agent. He had called uh, Bill Schifrin and he said, I've seen Michael Dodge's work and so forth. He's the guy I want uh, to, to play uh, Grant in uh, my film, The Naked Kiss. So when uh, Bill called me up that, I had, you know, pros and cons about doing the film. I know that's your next question, but uh, that was uh, my next question. Mm-hmm. So, Bill, you think I'm doing the right thing? My agent, I don't want to be paralyzed of you know, my career to stand still for doing something that was so provocative. But I can say now and think about it 
And I did think about it throughout my career until I'm gold that I was the first actor to play, to play a pedophile in, in a local picture. So I talked to uh, Sammy. He said, look, Michael, you want to play the detective? Anybody can play the, the detective. Oh, a lot of actors could play the detective. And he said, but you, you're the, the perfect type. You're an athlete. You're a great-looking guy. You're exactly what, what I want for this character. And he said, I, I guarantee you that it won't be a huge success in the beginning. If down the road, 30, 40 years from now, we're at the end of a time. He said, but you will be recognized and you would be the first actor to be a pedophile, and that would be. And the audiences will never forget you because you would never think that you were the, the character with all uh, the wonderful character, the uh, big uh, humanitarian, the big athlete, you're a war hero. Never suspect you of, of having a problem. And um, he said, down the road, you'll get all the accolades, I'm sure. So trust me. So I talked to Bill, the agent. I said, Bill, what do you think? He said, I think he's absolutely right. And I said, hey, I have no problems. I'm not a pedophile. I'm an action. <laughs> so that should be great to have on my repertoire of different characters. Because at that time, I was thinking, not accepting roles to stereotype myself or my career. Versatility was my gift that I could play the good guy, the bad guy. I could play the Native American. I could play the good boy, Kyle Gowie, cowboy, the bad guy, cowboy, and all the other contemporary things that I did during my career. You know, it turned out a lot of money, like in other series that were offered to me. So I was highly successful in the direction I wanted to go. Whether I did, uh, there were several other pictures that uh, I didn't do that I wanted to do because. The other actors in the picture, I was good-looking, I was too strong, I was too tall and handsome and so forth and so on, preventing me to progress as a motion picture star. I understood that. That's the name of the game. Ego killed more people than cheesecake, right? And I understood that. Now Hollywood was so overloaded with all of that. So anyway, we moved right along and so forth, but uh, wonderful Wonderful uh, experience with uh, Sammy. With him. He was the most wonderful director. He and Bud Benninger and Bill Whitney uh, were my favorite director. He would come to, to work every day with a jam, and he would say, Michael, look, that chrome sub, before she hits you with the phone and kills you, you're going to photograph that by yourself. I said, what? What are you talking about, Sammy? Well, he said, trust me. And this was when I walked in at 7 o'clock in the morning. He met me in my, my dressing room. He said, you're going to have a great time. You're going to photograph your old, your old shot. I close up. I said, wow, this is interesting. I can't wait. So the first shot in the morning, they had a uh, two-by-sticks. In those days, it was Mitchell Camera. You know, Mitchell Camera were the big as my desk. <laughs> They're huge. Today, the small camera does the same thing. But uh, and then, and they downlead, they were downlead the shot. It was a downlead shot. And what I would, what he wanted me to do was try to press my chest against the uh, two by six and hold the, the foot pressure 
found that two by six, and the lens was right in front of me, and I was not to move but to my left or right. I had to focus straight ahead and move, take a step without any bubbles, any wow. And we did it, we did it, we did it in one take. When I saw that in the movie and so forth, I mean, only Sammy was so innovative, he talented. Most of the young directors that came into the business learned so much from Sammy Fuller. It's remarkable how many directors I talked to asked me about Sammy and working with Sammy. It was a great experience of joy. He was so creative and his enthusiasm and the energy he had. It just permeated throughout the, uh, the set. The actors between the actors and then even the crew. The crew loved them because of his, his uh, love for what he was doing and his God-given talent. He was a joy to work with. When you're doing that close-up and walking along there, is anybody there reading their sides to you, or is it just you acting directly to the camera and nobody else? That's it. Right there until he wow. said, what? Cut print. Wow. When he said that, I said, no bubbles, no thing. You check the camera, check the camera. We're okay, cameraman. Okay, fine, great. That's it. He grabbed me, hugged me. And he said, that's wonderful. Michael, that's great. You're doing great, pal. And uh, Constance Towers and Tony Idley and uh, Tia, Patsy Kelly, Virginia Gray to work with. They were wonderful pros, you know. They were just great. And she, I thought she would. If it was a major uh, film, she would have been nominated for an award. She was yeah. just so you wrote. And all the singing she did, there was no recording or dubbing. She has a beautiful voice. She had a tremendous career on stage and did a lot of touring with all the great musicals that were ever written. Well, female lead. She was just, just marvelous and wonderful to work with. She's a beautiful lady inside and out. Of, and an wonderful actor. And of course, Patsy Kelly, the pro, and Virginia Gray, they were in Tony Isley, and may they rest in peace. Constance is alive and well, but Tony has left us, and Patsy and, and uh, Virginia are gone. But the uh, Redford Souls, they were so essential professional. You know, that time I was young and a learning process of, of working with such wonderful people. So we had a, a rapport. You know, there's just a love for one another, for another one's work. With that attitude, even in sports, you got to love one another to pick up where somebody has left off or didn't make the play. Well, it's your turn to make the play or even better. The same thing when you're working uh, with, an, with an actor. If you respond to something they improvise and you go with it, then all of your experience and talent you put into the 360 to make it a, the best film you could possibly make. You said that you preferred doing movies to television because the movies gave you a little bit more time to work on your character. And I'm curious how you approach a character like J.L. Grant and come up with what you're going to do with that person. Yes, exactly. Because we want to uh, certainly not indicate anything along the way so that an audience might detect something, do something uh, strange or weird, and indicate with any of the, the youngsters and so forth prior to that terrible moment. Well, when I was 
with the uh, the child alone, and of course, uh, and she uh, experience caught me uh, just at the the finish of of, uh, of my uh, uh, being with the child. So this, all of the other things, I wanted to fill my heart with all of all of the good things about the character, and I played him as a, not a character that was bad. He had a problem. He had a sickness. Up until that point, he was the greatest guy in the whole world. Humanitarian, he charity he got. He, he gave most of his money to children. Of course, it was his hospital and those children and, and everything and dedicated his life to doing wonderful things with his friends and people. And he had a personality. He was an athlete. He was a war hero, you know. And uh, he had just something he couldn't help. He had a, a problem, and that problem, his life, and that of sickness, cost him his life. How was the film received when it came out? It was unfortunate because it was the controversial subject matter and so forth. But uh, Sammy already alerted me what was going on and what was happening, and that it would be 30, 40 years from now, there'll be. They'll recognize your wonderful performance in the Naked Kisses. The Naked Kiss will be about children a while, children to be appreciated by all that. And there was uh, following that love film wall films. And it would be one of, it's going to be one of the classic film walls ever filmed. And he said to me, you're right in it, playing the controversial character, and you're going to be happy with the result down the road. But now we're not going to do any business, so. Leon Frankus was the producer, and of course, Sammy was the writer-director. And uh, with this wonderful cast and so forth, we all talked about it and realized that it uh, wasn't timely when it came like the freaking was it going to be that type of a film. We didn't make, it didn't make any money, and it went out like a church mouse. You know, it was quiet, and people talked about it. And uh, people that saw it and they told me it was Michael, I loved your performance in Showball and Constance uh, Tony, who guys was just wonderful in the film. So great film, but gee, something matters. And uh, nobody's going to really appreciate it, and everybody's going to go rush out to see it. When did you finally have that moment? When did people finally start to appreciate this film? I would say after. Uh, Gosh, it was a good 30 years later when it played in uh, the art houses. And I got called from directors, other actors, well, uh, the Lavalley, you know, Lavalley Theaters. They released at that time in Santa Monica. And they were called and said, Michael, I didn't know you were in that film. I said, they never asked me. You know, <laughs> and I said, oh, great. I was, I love Sammy Fuller. How was he to work with? Well, you know, 20 minutes, I, I gave him uh, stories about um, Sammy and what a joy it was to work with him, uh, his creative work and his enthusiasm. And uh, other actors, I said, gee, I've always wanted to work. What was it like working with, with Sammy? Oh, uh, same old story. I told him over and over what it was like. And if you ever get a chance to, don't worry about the money because his pictures are low-budget pictures, 
Just t- don't worry about it. You'll have a great credit after you work with him because you'll, one thing you'll be guaranteed a good performance. Be a wonderful director, creative director to work with. Did you and Sam ever talk about working together again after this? Yes. <laughs> he, he said, Michael, when we finished the picture, your grant was great. And he grabbed me and hugged me. He said, I got a picture we're going to do. And I was uh, a youngster at that time. And he said, the big red one. We're going to do the big red one. You know, he was in the service. Now he was a soldier. He had the big red one. And he tried to get that project off the ground. But it was a lot more money than uh, the budgets on his the pictures that they allotted him to do. So they didn't give him the money for whatever reasons. Because uh, it would be a, a big budget picture. He needed much more money. So that was on another ballpark for Sammy and producers and financiers. So the years were fit by. And uh, he finally did it. He got the picture made with a uh, older actor playing a veteran soldier in it. Uh, what was his name? Uh, Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin, yes, the wonderful actor and so forth. So, and the other actually, the other uh, members of the cast were all uh, of 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. By that time, I was 35, 40 years old. I was too old to play. So what I ran into, we talked and we laughed about it. And he said, I wish to play little we could work together in the big red one, but too much time went by. And, yeah, and I said, I don't say, I mean, but I'm rooting for it and, and good luck with the picture and so forth. But we talked from time to time and how's everything going and so forth and so on. And that, uh, yeah, we, we had hoped to do that one uh, within a year or, or two after the Naked Kiss. But the Naked Kiss, you know, he didn't have a leg to stand on. Uh, it didn't make any money. So couldn't graduate to doing a big budget picture with uh, <laughs> doing the big red one. So that was uh, unfortunate for me. I think we just have time for one more question. And I was just hoping you could share a little bit about your radio show and tell people where they can hear you. They can hear me, Team Dante Radio Shows, plural, dot com. And I did over 200 radio shows. And these are all the biggest stars in the business. So, I mean, Debbie Reynolds, uh, Glenn Campbell, Yogi Berra, Tommy Lasorda, Virginia Mayo. It just goes on and on of people that I wanted to, to live beyond their days and uh, not um, forget the talent that these people left behind in uh, I have an hour, 45 minutes, of course, with uh, commercial spots of each way, but there were 45 minutes and n- nobody in the world has this type of show and that I hosted. And uh, with all of these uh, Hall of Famers, I have about 40 Hall of Famers from the NBA, Major League Baseball, Golf, boxing and uh, baseball and, and so forth. So uh, between actors and actresses and entertainers, I covered all the greatest artists that I worked with and, and knew, and everybody knew uh, the uh, pleasure of the years of entertainment. All of these talented, gifted people uh, entertained us in the world over these years. And I didn't want that 
and then to forget those wonderful people. By the way, uh, all I have to go, go to my website, michaeldanteway, one word, dot com. I'll go to my email if they want any of my books. I've written five books now. Six one was is finished. And also, just go to michaeldanteway at aol.com. That's my uh, email. Email me. Any of the uh, audiences, if they want a copy of autograph copy, I would autograph a copy of The Naked Kiss. Just go to uh, give me all the information at michaeldanteway at aol.com. That's simple. One word, michaeldanteway at aol.com. And give me requests, whatever they would like, 8 by 10 photos. DVDs, and of course, Naked Kiss is available. Autograph, a little autograph, everything they uh, wish to purchase. I really appreciate this. I can't thank you enough for you participating in this and allowing me to speak with you this evening. Mike, it's my pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed the Naked Kiss, Marvelous Director, Sammy Fuller of the Chaos, and uh, working with you. And I can already tell you, that uh, it uh, was one of my most enjoyable films that I had the pleasure to to star in. You've been performing for so much of your life. Did I read right that you had an offer for a contract when you were 11 years old? I did, but my parents turned it down, and I wasn't upset because I didn't want it either. So, But they came down, my sister was... She was a wonderful athlete, and she was training for the Olympics, and she came to Los Angeles. So my parents brought me along, and uh, my sister was older than I, and she was a long-distance swimmer. And so they brought me down, and while I was here, someone who knew us up in Seattle, Washington, who worked for Paramount Pictures, called Paramount Pictures and said, you've got to see this little girl, and so when she sings. So suddenly I found myself standing at a glass box, kind of, at Paramount Pictures, auditioning and singing, I don't know, the mad scene from Lucia de Lomomore or something. And uh, so the, afterward, they asked me if I would be interested in a contract. And I said, no, that I really wanted, I wanted to be an opera singer, and I wanted to go to a place called Juilliard School of Music. So then they turned to my mother, who was really quite beautiful, turned to my mother and they said, well, would you be interested? Anyway, it was a fun experience. And later, when I was in Hollywood, I thought, oh, my gosh, I turned that down. Must have been crazy. I'm surprised you knew what Juilliard even was when you're 11. Well, I'd heard about it, but we knew someone who had gone to Juilliard. I had heard all about it, and I just, that was where I wanted to go. So an agent just happened to see you when you were attending Juilliard? Well, yes, I was. But an agent was a friend. He saw me actually at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in a play. And he was walking me down Fifth Avenue. And a man came up to us who knew him. His name was Pierre Bolting. And he was the manager of the St. Regis Hotel in New York at 55th and 5th. And so he ran into us at about 56th and 5th and asked if I could sing. And this agent said, yes, she can sing. 
And he said, well, then I'd like you to open in five weeks at the Maisonette in the St. Regis Hotel. And I didn't even know what that meant, really. But we found someone who put together a program of songs and the arrangements. And uh, I opened. And the opening night, Max Ardo, who was the big casting agent from Hollywood and of Columbia Pictures, he was there and he came back and he wanted to fly me to Hollywood for a screen test with Harry Cohn. So that's how that all happened. I've just been very lucky. Can you tell me a little bit about some of those early roles, especially working on Mike Hammer with Darren McGavin? Actually, he was wonderful to work with. He was very professional. Not at that time, but later I knew him closely. And he was just a wonderful, terrific guy to work with. But he was very professional, which I loved. Your day was organized, and he knew his lines. And you knew yours, though. So you really set about the task of fulfilling the producer's wishes. And no nonsense. It was terrific. I know you worked with John Ford at least twice. What was that experience like for you? Well, that was an awesome experience because he certainly is one of, if you were to list the five probably top in the history of film directors, one would be John Ford. So to have that opportunity was just overwhelming and wonderful. I understand he could be quite prickly sometimes. That was just, he was Irish, and I'm Irish. So I understood him. He was a perfectionist, and when he didn't get what he thought was perfect, he certainly let whomever he was aiming at, he let them know. He was wonderful to work with, because he made you really want to achieve your very best. And I was so green, so new, and he took the time to teach, which was wonderful. So I really had the greatest experience working with him. He couldn't have been more wonderful, more helpful more nurturing and prickly at times. He would certainly call you up if you didn't do something right. And he loved to stir up trouble anyway, because when I say he was Irish, they, the Irish do that. They're not quite happy unless there's some kind of a stew going on that he was always pitting actors against actors and making them angry just to get the emotion in a scene. And he thoroughly enjoyed it. He was a character. He was wonderful. He was Brilliant. He was a genius, a little eccentric and entertaining. He was fun and he was, he was a drill master. He was the coach. You had to be doing something right to make all those films and keep on working with the same people over and over again. Well, but they always had a different character. You know, Barry Fitzgerald may have been Barry Fitzgerald, but he was a different character. And the story was different. Or Ward Bond, or... John Wayne, of course, they were always, they were very distinct characters in their own right, and he never made you become somebody else totally. He liked John Wayne. I think you could always say that John Wayne was John Wayne, but a different character. Can you tell me, what was it like working with Sam Fuller, and how did you get the role in Shock Corridor? Well, I was introduced to Sam Fuller to party, and he talked to me about working in a film with him. And uh, I had always heard about him and thought it was just a, a great opportunity to work with him because he was really an actor's director. Actors loved to work with him because he was totally uninhibited. He, was, he wrote the property, he produced it, he directed it. He knew exactly what he wanted. Of course, the famous stories about the gun are all true, that 
when he, you least expected it, suddenly this gun would come out and he would shoot it off. And I asked him one day, I said, why do you do that? And he said, I got your attention, didn't I? So when he felt people were not concentrating on what he was doing and what he was saying, he would shoot the gun off. And it had blanks in it, but it still got your attention. He was a character. Did you have any concern about playing the role that you played in Shock Corridor, showing so much skin? No, because I didn't show that much skin. I mean, I could have been wearing a two-piece bathing suit. In fact, in those days, they wouldn't even let you show your navel. So it couldn't even have been a bikini bathing suit. It was they designed the costume so the navel was covered. So I didn't feel exposed at all. And the character was very innocent in the sense that it was Kathy and she was a stripper, but not she didn't take all of her clothes off. So that was fun. It's such a great film, and I can't believe it still stands up after all these years. I know. Isn't that amazing? We shot it in 1961, I think, or 60. It would make it, make it 60. That's right. Amazing. And, of course, Naked Kiss, even more so. They seem to, you know, just have film festivals around the Naked Kiss. So was it natural that you would just go from Shock Corridor to Naked Kiss? Was that all planned out? No, he didn't. Sam and I took a trip to Panama, where I was living at that time with my first husband. We went fishing, and we got to know each other. And then he got the inspiration for that movie and uh, wrote it and then asked me to do it. And I loved working with him so much that it was not difficult to agree to do it. And he was wonderful to work with. He was he was the director who would come and whisper in your ear, and no one else was a part of what he was telling you, that it was very personal between you and the director and what he wanted you to accomplish. He had a, a lot of respect for the actor, so he was delightful to work with. Now, that couldn't have been your first time singing on screen. Well, no, it wasn't. It was my second. Well, my third, actually, because in The War Soldiers, I sang a wonderful old Civil War song, Lorena, but it ended up on the cutting room floor. So that one did not make the movie. But in Bring Your Smile Along, which was the very first movie I made, it was a musical with Frankie Lane and directed by Blake Edwards. I'm trying to think of a scene in Naked Kiss that you're not in because the whole movie rests on your shoulders. <laughs> well, Sammy said that I was in every scene. I've not... I haven't seen the movie in some time, so I have to sit down and make sure that I'm in every scene. But I think he wrote it that way, that I was in every scene. What was it like working with Anthony Isley and Michael Dante? Anthony Isley was a wonderful actor, terrific person, and just delightful. He was very professional and easy to work with, and certainly Michael Dante was the same. He was creative in his own part. And uh, a lovely gentleman, both of them were just, couldn't have been nicer to work with. So, you know, sometimes you have somebody who's not cooperative or doesn't choose to learn their lines or is kind of unhappy that they're there. And uh, both of those men just made it easy to go to work every day. I was so delighted when I saw the movie and saw Patsy Kelly in there. I just love her. Oh, my God. I loved her so much. And we remained friends. Till the day she died, she was a wonderful, great character, and everything you think she was, she was. 
you know, she always had something smart to say and sassy and uh, a big, big heart. She was delightful. The shots that really stand out for me in that movie, there's two unusual point of views. One of Michael Dante talking with you, but he's really talking with the camera and confessing while talking about all your damage and he's damaged and you belong together. But the other one is that shot that opens up the movie with that POV where you're just beating the hell out of the audience. Right. What was filming that shot like for you? Well, it was certainly the first time I had been around any experience. It wasn't even a mini cam. It was sort of makeshift because they didn't quite have a mini cam yet. And uh, Stanley Cortez, who was the cameraman, was an expert and uh, brilliant in his own right. And I was so lucky to be photographed by him. He loved women. He loved women's faces. He took the time to light you, which nobody does today. Stanley was, was a master at what he did. And he was the one who really helped devise this whole approach to that scene with Sammy. And uh, they just told me to hit the camera and act feel like I was hitting the terrible man I was beating up. So I hit the camera. And I had no idea how effective it would be later when I saw the film. Today, when I go to a young filmmaker's office to discuss a project, that's what they want to talk about. Yeah, it was so innovative, and uh, it certainly stands up today. It's so shocking when people see the beginning of a film. And especially when your hair comes off and we get to see you completely bald. Yeah. Well, the one little secret to that, though, is I noticed in Sammy's autobiography that he said that he waited to shoot that scene until the end of the film, which may very well be true. That may be the last part of the film that we shot. But I did not shave my head. I didn't have that courage. He gave me more courage than I deserved. But they did such an expert job because I had very long thick hair, and they just licked it to my head in, in a way and then put the skull cap on it and you couldn't tell. It really looked like I was bald. It looks great. And the black and white photography really helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's all very shocking. And that, of course, was what they were trying to accomplish. When it came out, how was it received? Well, Sammy was sort of controversial. And uh, he finally made a film called White Dog that actually caused him to have to go and live in Europe, he lived in France for quite a few years because it just the, the subject matter was so shocking. But he always told the truth. He was a newspaper man as an actual career when he started. He told the story the way he saw it. Sometimes the stories were the truth was too hard to look at and maybe ahead of its time. I think Naked Kiss was ahead of its time because child molesters certainly were not a buzzword at that time. No one talked about it. You know, it just was a hidden subject, suspected maybe, but never talked about it. So Sammy was very brave. And so it was received in a very, I think, reserved way, but well-received because he had a bastion of fans at that point in his career. And everybody who wanted to see the latest Sam Fuller went to see it. You know, but it's gained in popularity, which is just amazing to me how over the years and today, 
whole film festivals are that around Naked Kiss. I don't know if Sam even realized that he was going to be so revered and so worshipped by filmmakers. Now, when it comes to stuff like Naked Kiss and Shot Corridor, were those considered lower budget or B pictures, or were those A pictures? No, it was absolutely, they were lower budget. I used to know the budget on both of them, but it was certainly not substantial. And that's part of his genius. When you think of the effects that he achieved in Shock Corridor, because it was originally called The Long Corridor, and that long corridor of all of those disturbed people, challenged people in that hallway, he hired short people to play those parts in the far distance. So he gave it, he gave it a perspective without making it, narrowing it down. He just made the people smaller. And he hired people who were short. So he constantly achieved, like the opening of Naked Kids, he just managed to do things in a very special way, which was part of his brilliance and part of the genius of that wonderful little man. I just love how strong the character of Kelly is, that she takes so much control of her own fate. Well, there again, you see Sammy ahead of himself. He was giving independent strength, giving the lady the main character. He gave her the power, gave her the control of the film. He liked strong women and respected them, and his mother was a strong lady. He started selling newspapers when he was like eight years old and nine years old in New York City on the street corner to help his mother because she was trying to raise a family on her own. And uh, she was strong, and he loved her, and he respected her. So he always chose strong women in his life. It's very interesting. He wasn't afraid of women. He wasn't afraid to give women every opportunity. You know, glorify them, give them control, make them strong. And uh, that was frightening to a lot of people, a lot of men at that time. Was that the first time you had a fistfight on screen when you and, I believe it was Candy, Virginia Gray went at it? Poor Virginia. Oh my God, every time she saw me, she had the sign of a vampire with her hands. She'd make a cross hidden in front of me. I loved her. We were good friends. But he said, stuff the money. So I did it. In Hannah Hunter, in The Horse Soldiers, has almost a fistfight with John Wayne. I stalked him with my fist. I don't know. I guess it's coming from Montana. Everybody thinks I'm strong. Do you have any favorite memories of making Naked Kiss? I do. I have memories of Sammy in his uninhibited, beautiful, childlike way, sitting on the floor with the children when we sang that little song. And I just love the fact that he said somewhere, he was quoted as saying, that he didn't care if people thought that was corny. He liked it, and he felt that it furthered the story. He felt that it advanced what he was trying to tell. So it's kind of interesting in the middle of a film noir for a song to break out, but it's, uh, it is very effective, and it's right in the storyline, so not a shock what the children are singing about. But he got on the floor with them. He was a child, and he just made those little kids feel so comfortable so secure in what they were doing that he got those wonderful little performances out of them. And other people couldn't get that. Children would be afraid of them or, you know, in awe of the strong person who was telling them what to do. But Sammy didn't do that. He got on the floor and just became a child. 
No, that's one of my favorite memories of him. And also, John Ford visited that practically every day. The first time he was coming, he announced to me that he was coming to visit the set, and he said, I'm coming for tea. And I said, okay, you're coming for tea. So I went to Sammy, and I said, you know, John Ford wants to come visit the set tomorrow, and he's expecting you to serve him tea. And Sammy said, what's tea? And I said, well, you know, you have a pot, and you've got tea in the pot, and you pour the tea in a cup, and you put the milk in it, and a little sugar cube, and that's tea. And he said, I don't know how to do that. And he said, why am I going to stop production to do that? And I said, well, I'll give you John Ford's reasoning, which was he felt that by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, everybody was tired. So he would give them a little sugar, and then they would work longer and with more energy and vitality to the end of the day. So with that reasoning, then Sammy said, you got to do it for me. So I did. I arrived at the studio with a teapot and a pot to boil the water in and Somebody helped me get a hot plate so we could make the water hot. So we made tea for John Ford. And I think that was actually the first time that Sammy ever had tea in a tea formal setting. He may have had tea out of a cup or whatever, but never the way tea is intended to be. So we had cookies and little sweets and cake and things with it. But it was, that was one of my favorite moments, was just how uncomfortable poor Sammy was. And John Ford, of course, in his troublemaking way and loving to make people uncomfortable, adored making Sammy uncomfortable. So it was a delicious moment. I love the mental image I have of those two guys having tea together. I know. Isn't that wonderful? And there's a wonderful photograph of John Ford with his arm around Sammy's shoulders and at his memorial, Curtis Hansen produced Sammy's memorial at the Director's Guild, and he called me and he said, I have to have that picture. So they blew it up and that was outside. So when people walked into the auditorium, they saw this picture of the great John Ford with his arm around Sammy's shoulders. So it was very special. And I'm sure Sam had a cigar either in his hand or in his mouth. Oh, yeah. Well, they both did. John Ford, oh, God, he loved his cigars. And he used to hand me this cup of tea, and there would be a cigar butt floating on the top of it. Now, they both left their cigars. Sammy always had it, but so did John Ford. You've done so much Broadway, so many shows, so many musicals. How do you even keep track of it after a while? Well, I just was very lucky. I just happened to arrive in various wonderful, celebrated, great artists lives at a time when they gave me personal attention, like Richard Rogers or George Abbott, Mr. Broadway. He directed the first Broadway musical that I did. And uh, then Richard Rogers saw me in that, put me in another show. I've just been very, very lucky, you know, that I was in the right place at the right time. And then I just met these wonderful people who guided me through my career. What was it like being Anna in The King and I? Well, that was certainly the ultimate moment of a career, to be able to, again, be in the right place at the right time when Yul Brynner wanted to do it again after 1951 with Gertrude Lawrence, and now this was 1970, 
nine. And he was willing to do it again. He was terrified to go before the critics again and to be a part of all of that place at the right time and able to do it, which was so wonderful. And so it was an awesome experience in every way. And working with Ewell Brunner, he was the consummate king, and he always will be. I don't think anyone has ever quite matched his king. And to be a part of that on stage was just delicious. It was wonderful. And we would meet at the theater at five in the afternoon to have tea. Tea seems to be in my life. But we would meet to have a cup of tea in his dressing room, and we would discuss the performance. You know, we were on Broadway for a little better than two years, and then we were together on the road for a year. So we'd had many performances, but we discussed every performance. What if we made a discovery? We tried something new, and it kept the performances so fresh and so, so alive. And that was working with somebody who really loved what he did and was willing to share all of that with me, it made it a rare, wonderful experience. People have asked me, they said, well, you know, you do that many shows, do you ever forget your lines? Do you? And yes, we forgot our lines one night, and it was epic. It was the 500th performance, but we both, he went up first. No, I went up first. In the first song, I knew that whenever I felt afraid, I whistled a happy I knew that word was musical, but for some reason I couldn't remember. I was a happy tune, and out of my mouth came the word song. And so the little boy on the stage with me playing Louie looked at me and gave me a high sign, and when he got to that part, he sang song. And the orchestra was looking over the lip of the stage as the conductor had the baton in his nose, and so it was hilarious. But then I came back on stage, and Yul Brynner just looked at me, in the second scene, and I tried to ad-lib my way around, and he finally just looked at the audience and said, etc., etc., etc. And I thought, this is really terrible. And I looked at him, and I picked up the cue from etc., etc., etc. We got back into the scene, and we were fine. So at the end of the first act, Richard Rogers walked up to both of us, and he said, what's the name of the show? We were all a part of it. I couldn't believe I forgot a lyric, though, with Richard Rogers in the wing. Terrible. So, yes, we did do that, but each performance we built on whatever we had discovered. So the last performance was fuller, richer, better than the very first performance we did. It was a great experience. How many years did you do General Hospital? Oh, gosh. It's now... I think it's been 23 years since I, since I started. And I still come back in people's nightmares or if they're asleep and they wake up in the morning and say, oh my God, she was here. And it's a nightmare. Helena was here. And that's fun because it, it's not the pressure of doing the show every day, but every now and then I go in and I'm Helena again, and that's fun. You have to memorize so much dialogue for these shows. Yes, you do. But I'll tell you, it's great training. I don't think there's anything you could give me that I couldn't memorize. Today, I can have it by Monday. If it was a Broadway play, I'm sure if I had to sit down and learn it, I could learn it. Because you've trained your brain, you know, that when that red light goes on, it uh, concentrates. 
your brain. You have to know what you're doing. Learning all of that dialogue is a great exercise for your brain, but it's also, for an actor, a great teaching ground or a great habit forming because you can memorize, you can make lines become your own very quickly. Many people, well, on Broadway, you have the luxury of five weeks of rehearsal, and on a soap opera, you may get your script the night before. It's happened. Not often. I mean, usually you have it two or three days. But I've been handed pieces of paper. Well, I did Frasier, the nighttime comedy show. And we were doing the last performance for the audience. And they handed me a rewritten last scene, which I had to learn in like five minutes, and do it in front of the audience. And that was fine. I did it. And all that training comes in handy. And you never know when. Have you written your memoirs? Because I would love to read more of these stories. I have not. People encourage me to, but I keep saying, first of all, I couldn't write a book about myself. The only kind of book I could write would be about the wonderful people I have worked with. I have thought about it, but I haven't done it. So when you're not putting up with the California weather, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm coming up the hill with the hailstorm coming down the other day, and it was like snow in Montana. And I was slipping and sliding all over the hill, and so were cars coming at me. Dealing with this weather has been something. But I play pickleball with a group of people. We'll enjoy that. I exercise every day, so that takes a part of my morning. So I keep busy, and then I just have wonderful friends who go to dinners and have parties. So that's fun. Ms. Towers, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a pleasure talking with you. Well, it was my pleasure to thank you. I used to dream that I would discover the perfect lover. Someday I knew I'd recognize him if ever he came round my way. I always used to fancy then he'd be one of the godlike kind of men with a giant brain and a noble head like the heroes bold in the books I've read but along came Bill who's not the type at all you'd meet him on the street and never notice him his form and face his manly grace are not the kind that you would find in our statue. All right, we are back and we are talking about the naked kiss. And yeah, I know, Philip, you read a lot about the making of this movie and about Fuller and even watched all the docs and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like I've been preparing for this my whole life. No, ever since. I got White Dog, and I think it was one of the social media, so probably Facebook actually, back in 2008-2009 when the DVD came out. They did a perfect PR run for White Dog where it's like, it's this film that nobody wants you to see. So I was like, I want to see that movie. 
And then now the DVD has been out of print for a very long time. Like there's a couple of Barnes and Nobles around the country that have them, but it's a very hard film to find. But yeah, ever since I saw that, anything Sam Fuller I can get my hands on. If anybody wants to be in my good graces for the rest of their lives and have a no questions asked for a favor, find me a copy of The Dark Page. I can't find it anywhere. Fuller is just such a remarkable filmmaker. There is not enough good things I can say about him. Not enough people know about him. So I was also excited that because your podcast is listened to by so many people that this is, uh, tell your friends. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, Fuller, particularly by the big indie filmmaking figures and European filmmakers of like the 80s and 90s. So like Vim Benders and Jarmusch and Tim Robbins. And like there was a generation around the 80s and 90s that came up really, really engaged with Samuel Fuller. And it feels a little bit like he's kind of fallen off some people's radar, which is unfortunate. I guess in a way, you know, it's, it's like he became really popular at that period when I was really starting to see a lot more movies and I was at school and in a community where we were constantly watching stuff. So he was on my radar. But I have to say in the last several years, maybe he's even fallen off just a little bit or I've sort of taken my love of Fuller's film for granted. And I certainly have not seen all of his work at this point, which there's there's quite a bit of it. Yeah, he's really a key figure. I mean, there are moments there are moments in this movie where, you know, we could talk about his connection to Jonathan Demme's work. And it's not only sort of characters looking directly into camera, but there are some really interesting kind of humanistic modes of address that I think Demme draws on from Fuller, but then puts to very, very different kinds of use in his films. But one of the things that surprised me this time through was going, oh, I feel like I'm I hadn't noticed this before. I felt like I was seeing a lot of proto Demi and, you know, Demi being one of one of my personal favorite filmmakers ever. We talked about this on uh, Sunset Boulevard. This was also my year of David Lynch thinking about Shot Corridor Naked Kiss. I saw so much Lynch in there of just the nightmare and just what is lurking. Like, I really feel like and I, I read so many reviews that brought up Blue Velvet, but like, how can you not? I feel like Grantville and like the town in Blue Velvet, Lumberton, man, like logs, logs, logs. Yeah, so much. Uh, yeah, I felt a whole lot of kinship. Absolutely, and I think that sense of the really kind of volatile and unruly tone of Fuller's work is reflected in some of the arguments that have gone on, like big moral arguments about Lynch's work. Maybe not as much now, but in the eighties and nineties, there was a lot of kind of moralistic attack on Lynch as like some kind of ironist of, uh, oh, you know, I don't care about anything. I'm just like laughing at all this violence and horror. And, you know, you can maybe make that argument about like Wild at Heart, which is a movie that I still enjoy, even though I think it's pretty, you know, it's kind of lightweight Lynch. But Lynch's work and Fuller's work, here's the thing. You can tackle maniacally at stuff that you're seeing that is very complicated in the movie. But, you know, Fuller is not making fun. There's a lot of irony. There is irony in Fuller's work. But we're talking about a different kind of irony. It's not the like, I don't give a shit about anything. Or isn't it funny to see this horrible it's violence? It's I care about this so much. Exactly. That's precisely it. It's I care about this so much that irony cannot help but come into the mix. And it's almost like if you don't care about this audience... And you need to take a look at yourselves. I think of, uh, I re-listened to, uh, Mike, your episode on the run of the arrow. I don't know if you, have you seen that Spencer? I have. I love that. The one. run of the arrow ends with basically a title card where Sam Fuller is like, now you audience go and live a better, like make society better. 
<laughs> like, no, I won't go on at length about it, but a friend and I tried to write a, this was before the wave of zombie movies, I will say. This was like in 2002. We were trying to write a zombie movie based on Run of the Arrow, <laughs> which I kind of wish we had done. But honestly, we stopped working on it after 28 days later. We were like, ah, it's nah, zombies. It's done. Uh, we don't need to do a zombie movie. It's that's that's over. Yeah. Um, that wave has yeah. passed. Yeah, that wave has passed. <laughs> but yeah, Run of the Arrow is uh, a really, really amazing, amazing film. And all of his war films are incredible. You know, it's. Big Red One is is a bit of a mess, but it also has some stuff that is just unlike, as far as my knowledge of American war cinema, unlike anything that any other filmmaker has done. Talk about irony. This is not laughing irony. This is deep, historical, tragic irony. When Mark Hamill in that movie, who has been the pacifist that will not engage in violence throughout all of it, you know, goes into the one of the death camps and he just shoots this Nazi who's hiding in an oven over and over and over again. And in that moment, it's showing that, you know, on the one hand, there's justice being done. And on the other, that justice being done has ruined Mark Hamill's character. You see a deadness in his eyes. He's ruined in the moment of violence. Mark Hamill playing the real friend of Sam Fuller, Griff, who had a, a tragic life after that. And about half the Sam Fuller films have a character named Griff in there. Because of that relationship, and I was reminded watching the uh, Fuller Life documentary earlier this year, not just for this, that Sam Fuller, only director in history to have done a Normandy scene who was actually there. He was there. And the Big Red One, I agree, it's it's a lot of things. It's not my favorite Fuller war movie, but it's, it's essential. I agree. You know, there's a lot that's broken about it, but I love it unreservedly. I won't apologize. Oh, yes. So glad they restored it. Rick Richard Schickel. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Really, really incredible movie. And not to get lost in the weeds on that particular one, but, you know, Fuller is just you know, huge and multifaceted. What an amazing career. Also, side tangent here. This isn't the Big Red One episode, but that the scene with Mark Hamill in real life the aftermath of that started Sam Fuller's career. That was the first footage he ever took. His mom sent him a video camera uh, and the liberation camera. Film. <laughs> film camera. His mom sent him a film camera. And yeah, the aftermath, the liberation of a death camp was the first thing he ever shot. Well, to bring it back to Naked Kiss, what an amazing choice to name the character Griff in this movie and what that guy goes through. And I think, again, this speaks to Fuller as a really great, hard humanist, like where this can be a tribute to a friend while also being a character who is at moments really despicable and is doing things that are that are very wrong. The journey that Griff goes through in Naked Kiss, I have to wonder, you know, what do you think if you're Griff? In real life. And of course, you know, Fuller just put in these characters named Griff in many of the films because he had a, a tribute to this friend. But I, I think that that's, yeah, making that connection to the representation with the Mark Hamill character in Big Red One. I think that's really key to Fuller's sense of humanity. Humanism isn't just about sympathy. And it's also not just sort of sympathy for the devil either. It is this really complicated thing that I think has, you know, maybe part of why Fuller is not as much in fashion right now is I don't think that ideas of humanism in storytelling are as much in fashion. But this is this is a confrontation with something where it's not just like, 
everybody's wonderful. It's more like everybody is wonderful and also terrible. And we are all dependent upon one another in a, in a yes. social network. Which that message deeply needed now. Deeply. What's well, interesting how he comes back in vogue every few years. It's like the French, you know, you mentioned Godard, you mentioned Pere Lefou. I mean, Dennis Hopper would use him in the last movie. Then you get into Vim Vendors. That Scorsese thing in the 90s. Yeah. You get into Vim Vendors with the American friend. You get Spielberg using him in 1941. Yeah. And then it's like a few years past. He's still doing films. He's still working avidly at that point. Then you get like the rifle, the gun, the typewriter, and that shines a new light on him. Then you've got a fuller life a few years ago. You've got the movie start to come out. And it's like, okay, every once in a while, people will be like, oh, I got to just discover this Sam Fuller guy. He's amazing. And it's just like, yes, yes, he is. But like, continue that. Like, we all need to remember Sam Fuller and none of these films just because they are so important and so well done. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm immensely grateful. I was checking my, Fuller shot. Sam Fuller is one of the two directors where I have their work separate on my shelves. I usually have like Blu-rays, DVDs, Criterion, and then I have a Sam Fuller shelf. I got about, I don't know, 15 or 20 or so of them. And I don't have them all quite yet, but just to remind myself and to, to try to give out to other people like, hey, like you need to check this guy out. You need to know this man. Well, he was a hell of a writer and he was a hell of a filmmaker himself. And yeah, you get even like, uh, it wasn't even Vin Vendors, it was the Kurosmaki brothers who did that uh, Tigrero, the lost movie that he was I have on. the Tigrero DVD from back in the day, but now I guess it got a remaster. It's the word on the internet is that it may be a feature if uh, House of Bamboo gets a Criterion release. That would be, be something. amazing. Yeah, it'd be amazing. I just recently got to see, I think it's, is it Women in Prison? It's the McNaughton. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The <laughs> thing that he wrote in the 90s for McNaughton. I think that was his last thing that he wrote. Yeah, but you know, it was. But it's Sam Fuller, so I'm Sam sure Fuller it's not. All the way. Have you seen? I'm it? Sure, it's not a, a women in prison. No, I haven't seen that. Oh, one you've got to see it. Yeah, it's not just a straightforward women in prison movie. It is absolutely like this Sam Fuller Fantasia. McNaughton did a really great job of just delivering the goods with it. It is bonkers and so much fun. It's not a deep work, you know, like Shock Corridor or The Naked Kiss. But it's a really, really terrific movie. And it's a shame that it's like one of those HBO made titles that sort of has just been allowed to disappear. That's one that I really hope get some kind of, you know, treatment on disc or streaming. And I'll just throw out, <laughs> I talked about it with the opening with the hammer, Street of No Return is an insane movie. Like it's basically like a, how did this get made type movie? But it's also kind of very compelling as well it's uh it's it's wild yeah that was based on a goodest and the goodest book is amazing because it starts with these three bums all around like a the oil can fire type of thing and then the one bum who's played by is a robert Carradine, i think in the movie keith Carradine. okay he goes off thank you he goes off and has like his whole adventure and then he comes back and at the end he's back with the three bums at the fire and it's just like, you know, what'd you do tonight? It's like, oh boy. He <laughs> goes through a lot of adventure. I mean, Goodis in himself, you know, I can't sing enough of his praises, but to have Goodis and Fuller at the same time, it's a volatile mix, but I think it really comes together. So I want to thank my co-host Spencer and Philip. So Philip, what is happening with you these days, sir? You can hear me podcast over at The Substance 
We're a a variety show on faith and culture. We very regularly cover films under our substantive cinema banner. Recently, we've had Josh Larson of Film Spotting come on to talk Night of the Living Dead. Recently also covered Double Indemnity and Everything Everywhere All at Once. Stuff like that. New and old films of substance. If you're interested, check us out at The Substance or at The Substance Pod on the socials. Cool. And Spencer, what's happening with you, sir? You know, depending on the day, I'm in uh, post-production heaven or post-production hell. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of uh, what's going on in my life. But I, I just want to put it out there. Maybe uh, since there are a lot of Fuller films, a Fuller February in the future for uh, the projection booth might be in order. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. is right here.